about that song, Dream Small? You guys like that as much as I do? I really like that song. I feel like that's our theme song. Is that our theme song? All in favor? All right, that's our theme song. Great. Well, thank you so much to our band. Thank you all for being here today. We are in part four of a four-part series that we're calling The Source, and this is a message series about the Bible. And I know that's weird for a church setting to be talking about the Bible, but that's what we're doing in this church because we are a weird church, talking about the Bible for four weeks. And the reason that we're doing this series, you know this by now, right? The reason that we're doing this series is that in 2019, some of you, perhaps many of you, many of you would be great, are going to be doing this thing in 2019. You're going to be reading the Bible. For some of you, it'll be your first time trying this. For some of you, it'll be your first time succeeding at this. Maybe you've tried it other times, but you're going to succeed this time, and it's going to be great. So before that happens, before you dig into this book and open it up and start to read it, we wanted to prepare you for what's ahead of you. So that's the point of this whole series. We're trying to give you as much preparation as you can handle in advance to to really get the most out of this Bible reading. That's what we want you to experience is to actually understand what you're reading. And so we've been going through this series. We started with week one talking about what the Bible is and what it isn't. And the Bible is a revelation. It's God revealing himself to us, revealing truth to us. That's what the Bible is. We talked about where we got the Bible. Do you remember that message? We talked about where the process for how the books were assembled. So we went through all that again. If you missed these messages, they are available on our website website, hopeccdelco.com. And then last week, we talked about how to read the Bible, like this approach. We talked about those questions you can ask before you read a passage. I'm trying to remember what were those questions. You ask a few questions, some W questions. You ask uh, when, what, who, to whom, and why. When was this book written? What kind of book is it? Who wrote the book? Who are they writing to and why? And if you can answer those questions before reading a passage, you're going to be that much more likely to understand what it is you're reading in its appropriate context. And so we move on. We're going to finish out this series, last one in the series, and then, then you'll all be ready, right? Then we'll all be ready to do this thing and read the Bible. It was so great when Sean announced that we were doing this Bible reading. I heard one person clearly applaud. So thank you to whoever you are. Of course, it was the girl who went to Bible college. But yes, we're excited about this. And we'll be ready after this. All right. Um, do you guys remember? This is a weird thing for me to mention. Do you guys remember back in the day, those shoes that came out? Sketches was the first one to do it. It was the shape-up shoe. Do you remember the shape-up shoe? They were rounded at the bottom there, right? It was the shape-up shoe. And they were called the shape-up shoe because they were supposed to help you get in shape, right? You're going to get so fit. You're going to get so toned just from wearing these shoes around. You remember those shoes, yeah? Well, as it turns out, they didn't work, right? They didn't work. They didn't work, and there was no medical evidence, no scientific evidence that suggested they were going to make you more fit or anything like that. In fact, in 2011, Skechers lost a lawsuit. They had to pay $40 million, something like that, because of their false claims about these shoes. Just didn't work out. But so many people, here's the thing, so many people bought those shoes. You know why? Because we wanted to believe it, right? We wanted to believe, I'm going to wear these shoes, and that in and of itself is going to make me more fit. I'm going to get in shape from wearing these shoes, and it's going to be great. We wanted to believe it. But if you actually take the time to think about it, you think, well, why, why, why would this work? Why would this work? And so as I said, it turns out they don't really work. And so Skechers lost a big lawsuit. But here's the thing. Did you know? That was 2011 they lost that lawsuit. Did you know? You can still buy those shoes. You can still buy them. In fact, you could do it right now. You could tune me out, get on your phone, go on Amazon, buy some Skechers shape-ups, right? So Skechers still sells them. There are knockoff brands that sell them. They don't, they, I think they have to call them fashion shoes, right? They call shape-up fashion shoes. We're talking about fashion, not getting fit, okay? But you can still buy them, and people still do, and people still think they're going to get a workout from wearing these shoes. Why? Be- well, I don't know. Because we want to believe 
We want to believe that this is going to work. We want to believe that there's a shortcut. We want to believe it, and so we believe it. And so why, even after they lost the lawsuit, why would people still choose to believe that these shoes are going to help you get in shape? Why would people believe that? For two reasons. Here's one. They have not been exposed to the truth, all right? Have not been exposed to the truth, and so they believe the lie still. This seems like a real, I'm, going, I'm talking about these shoes. Do you see where I'm going with this? I'm trying to make a point. Just stay with me. They, they haven't been exposed to the truth, so they believe the lie. They believe, I'm going to wear these shoes. They're going to make me feel good. I'm going to get in shape just from wearing these shoes because they have not been exposed to the truth. Here's the other reason why people still buy them. They've been exposed to the truth, but they choose to believe the lie <laughs> because the lie is more convenient, Right? And the lie we want to believe. And so here's my point in all this. Are our note takers ready? All right, pens at the ready, note takers. You're going to love this, right? There is a difference. Oh, great. There is a difference. This is going to, you're going to be like, you're going to be so stunned by this profound wisdom I'm about to give you. Are you ready for this? There's a difference between what we want to be true and what is true. There's a difference between what we want to be true and what is true. And I know what you're thinking. Why did I bother writing that down? I already know that. Yeah, you already know that, right? You already know that. There is often a difference between what we want to be true and what actually is true. Now, the way that our close personal friend, Mr. Andy Stanley, says it, and he is a close personal friend. I consider him a friend. He doesn't know me, but that's all right. The way Andy Stanley says it is this. He talks about human beings, and he says, here's here's what we need to know about ourselves. We are not on a truth quest. We are on a happiness quest. By our, in, our, you know, in our default mode as human beings, we're not questing after the truth. We're not seeking after the truth. We're not searching after truth. We're searching after something else in this life. We're searching after, as Andy says, happiness or contentment. We're searching after validation or affirmation or confirmation. We want to be told what we want to be told, and we want to believe what we want to believe. That's what we're looking for in this life. We're not automatically... Without intentionality and without discipline, we're not on a truth quest. It takes those things. It takes intentionality and it takes discipline if we're actually going to quest after truth, right? Because we don't want truth as human beings. I mean, maybe Jack Nicholson was right. I don't know. Maybe we can't handle the truth. I don't know. That's like, no, that didn't work. Okay, that's fine. Maybe I should have done the voice. That's all right. I'm not going to do it. Maybe we can't handle the truth, but I think we can. We just prefer, we don't prefer the truth. We don't prefer the truth. We just want to be told that what we're doing is right and what we're doing is good, right? That's why when you come in here on a Sunday morning and you're listening to me preach at you about something you already believe, and you're listening to me encourage you to do something that you already do, you know what you do then? You make this face at me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what you do. When I'm telling you to do something that you're already doing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you're sitting with your spouse and he's not doing or she's not doing, mm-hmm, 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 and you look down the road at your kids, mm-hmm, 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 that's the face you give me. But then when I say something challenging, ah, I don't get that face anymore. When I encourage you to do something that you're not already doing or challenge one of your beliefs, you know what face you give me then? It's this face. It's this face. That's the face that you make when you're thinking, well, this guy's not even a real pastor. I don't have to listen to him. I don't have to do what he says. This isn't even a real church. I'm going back to my old church. That's what the face you give me, right? Because we don't want to be told the truth. We don't want to be told that. And it's funny. This is just a funny thing. That's why whenever I stand up and talk about sex, all the married couples in the room give me this face. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And all the dating couples give me this face. 
all right? That's why everybody should preach at least once. You get an awesome view up here. It's a, it's a wonderful experience, right? But the truth, the truth can be tough. I mean, there's some truths that we just love and we gravitate towards and we think they're wonderful, but the truth can also be difficult. My point in saying all this is that when we get into the Bible, when we start reading the Bible, and if you're going to join us in this plan or not, whatever it is, whenever you pick up the Bible, look into it and start to engage with it, you have some choices. You can go to this book in hot pursuit of the truth or not. And you can deal with these truths, and you can embrace them, and you can accept them, or you can push back against them, and you can do the thing that so many of us Christians do. We say, well, the Bible, I mean, it, God couldn't have actually said that. I must be a misinterpretation. Or, you know, whenever we come up against these things that we're not comfortable with, we can find a way to explain them away. Or, or we can embrace the truth, as difficult as that is. Take a look. Take a look at these couple verses in your bulletin. It's two strange verses, Right? My poor mother had to read those for us today. I was like, well, should we? That's, I don't even know what that is. So out of context, thank you for reading those, Mom. But these couple verses are from what we call the Sermon on the Mountain. Just a couple verses, and it's a transition. There's one idea becoming a new idea, right? And I'm so excited for you, those of you who are going to be doing this Bible reading thing, because when you get to the fall of 2019, you are finally going to read the Sermon on the Mountain for yourself. And you've heard me encourage you to do it for years now. And you've heard me make my dumb little jokes. Hey, give yourself a treat this afternoon and read the Sermon on the Mount. And you're so sick of it. But you're finally going to read it for yourself in the fall of 2019. And you're going to see the genius of Jesus. And how one idea, and it's so simple what he talks about, basic life stuff. How one idea becomes another idea, becomes another idea. And they're all connected. And the danger is whenever we take a few verses out of the Sermon on the Mount, we're missing the whole context. I'm so excited for you. You're going to see the whole thing. But let me show you the context of what's going on here. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus has just preached this group of people, talking, them, talking to them about judgment. Don't judge others. And we love that verse. We love to pull those quotes out of the air, especially when someone starts to give us a hard time about what we're doing. Hey, man, don't judge me, right? And so he's talking to the people about judgment. Matthew chapter 7. And he does this whole thing. And if you've spent enough time in church, you've heard this before. Jesus says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! Take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so the point that Jesus makes there is this. He's not saying you're not allowed to, to talk to somebody else about their life and the decisions that they're making. He's not saying that always. Before you go and do that, get yourself right. Take the plank out of your own eye. First do that. Then you can speak to other people. Then you can encourage or maybe even challenge others. And so he transitions from that into this kind of comparison of what it's like to try to speak truth to someone who doesn't want to hear it. Try to speak some wisdom into somebody's life who's not ready for it, who's not seeking after it, right? And we have that phrase that, what is it, unsolicited advice? Don't go around giving unsolicited advice. And so that's what Jesus is talking about in this verse here. He says, do not give dogs what is sacred. And that sounds harsh, but you think of that quite literally. If there's a dog there, you're not going to serve it filet. And if you do, then you've got issues. You shouldn't be doing that, right? You're not going to serve it something precious, something sacred. Don't do that. It's not going to take advantage of it. It's not going to use it, all right? Don't throw your pearls to pigs. What's the point of that? And if you've got these pearls of wisdom, if you've got these truth nuggets or these truth bombs to deliver, you have to, I mean, people just, don't, they don't want it. They don't want it. If they don't want it, they don't want it. And Jesus is right, by the way. And Jesus is, yeah, isn't that a funny thing to say? That's an understatement. You know, Jesus was right about this. 
His whole life shows us this. What did Jesus go around doing? Speaking the truth. Completely innocent. He never did anything wrong. Never said anything wrong. And when he spoke the truth to people, he did that thing that we're all supposed to do. We fail, but he succeeded. He spoke the truth in love. He told people the truth that they didn't want to hear, how they were supposed to live. He told people that their shoes just don't work and they didn't want to believe him. I made that part up. Read your Bible. I don't know. Maybe you did. Read your Bible. You don't know. He told people the truth. And what did he get for it? They sentenced him to death. They executed him. And so Jesus is right here. Be careful about how you handle the truth and who you're trying to deliver the truth to. And it's so wonderful. Man, I could get lost in the Sermon on the Mountain because Jesus goes back and forth looking at relationship dynamics, right? It's like, don't go giving people, don't go judging other people. You got to take care of yourself, right? Look at the man in the mirror first, the person in the mirror. Don't go judging them. You get yourself right. And if they're not asking for it, if they're not asking for help, it's dangerous to try to give it to them. If they're not asking for the truth, it's dangerous to try to deliver it to them. And then he goes back to you. He says, what we should do, verse 7, ask. You should ask for the truth. You should ask. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Verse 8, for everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. The genius of Jesus, one idea into the next, into the next, and they're all connected and they're all related. And we love that, don't we? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. What are you asking for in this life? What are you seeking after in this life? Whose door are you knocking on? What is it you're questing after? And here's the thing. If you're questing after truth... And if you're going to this book and quest for the truth, you will find it. But if you're not questing after that, if you're questing after something else, like, oh, I don't know, validation, you could find that in this book as well. If that's what you're looking for, that's why, I mean, just about every issue that exists, you can find a Christian book on this side or on that side. <laughs> just about every issue that exists. Let me pick a big dangerous one. Oh, I don't know, about homosexuality. Should we talk about that for a little bit? You can go into a Christian bookstore and pick up a Christian book written by a Christian person who uses Bible passages to prove that homosexuality is a completely valid, God-honoring lifestyle. You can prove it. Or you can walk over to the other side of the shelf and find a Christian book written by a Christian person who uses passages from our Christian Bible to prove that it is against God's will for people to engage in that kind of lifestyle. Well, you're all giving me this look now, right? And that's just how it is, because you can go to the Bible, you can, and then we call, they call that proof texts, right? You're just trying to prove your point. I'm going to use this book to prove my point. That's also called eisegesis. Did you learn that term in seminary? Eisegesis is where you go, yeah, there you go. You go to the Bible with your agenda, with your point, and I'm just going to prove my point using some passages from Scripture, okay? The opposite of that is exegesis. Which is where you start with the text and then learn your points and learn your stuff from the text itself. You let the text inform your opinions rather than the opinions informing what text you use, okay? That was just like a little Bible study lesson. How about that? And so that's why you do this, because if you're not seeking after the truth in this book, then you probably won't find it. You can push back against it. You can. But if you're seeking after truth, man, let me tell you, that takes courage. It's difficult. 
And so I don't know, like for those of you who are going to do this Bible reading in 2019, I don't know how this is going to be for you. I don't know what kind of tough truths you're going to wrestle with as you read this, but let me just, let me make this about me for a little bit here. Let me tell you how this has been difficult for me to actually read this collection of texts, to read this Word of God in pursuit of the truth. Here's, what our, here's a couple places where I struggled, okay? Let me start with the book of Genesis. Because you're going to find these, these, these passages along the way that don't line up with what you thought about God or what you thought about faith or what you thought about Christianity, the things that don't seem right, things that don't seem fair. You're going to have to decide what to do with them. So here are some of the tough truths, the difficult truths that I had to wrestle with along the way in reading this book. Genesis chapter 6, we learn about Noah. And if you spend any time in Sunday school as a kid or a CCD or whatever, that you learn about Noah, something about an ark, something about animals. It's a cute little story. There's a flannel graph. It's wonderful. There's usually little toys you can play with. Great. But the whole story of Noah, have you read this thing in the Bible? It's rough. Genesis 6, 11 through 13. This is in your Bible too, by the way. It's not just my Bible. It's in your Bible too. I don't have like a difficult edition. It's in your Bible too. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, listen to what God says, I am going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And you read that as a Christian. You read that as someone who perhaps grew up in Sunday school, and you read that and you think, really, God? Really? You're going to wipe out humankind? And you have to decide what to do with that. Well, you know what? This is, this, something's lost in translation here. I'm, I'm, I'm sure God didn't mean that. I'm sure. Or you're going to have to come face to face with this difficult truth about God. That God is capable of wrath. That our God, yeah, he's a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment. And that God has and will exercise his judgment on this earth. That's tough. And you move along and you read and you make it to Deuteronomy chapter 20. And in Deuteronomy, by that point in history, God has established a nation of Israel. And he has promised to Israel a land, a promised land. And so the Israelites, they're about to take this promised land. There's only, you know, one small little hiccup in the plan. There are already people living there. Here's what, here's, this is what God says. Your God, Christians, this is what he says. Deuteronomy Chapter 20, verses 16 through 18. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy. I'm not making this up. This is in your Bible too. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. How do you read that passage? How do you read that and come to terms with what God was commanding the Israelites to do? I mean, God, it sounds a lot to me like you're, you're insisting on a genocide, wiping out nations of people. Don't leave anything alive that breathes. I'm not the least bit, is everyone with me? I'm not the least bit comfortable with any of that. But if I'm going to believe the truth, and I'm, if I'm going to believe everything I've said up to this point, that the Bible really is the Word of God, and this is a reliable source of truth, then I have to somehow come to terms with this, 
that yet again, God is capable of judgment. You know, once upon a time, he used water, a flood, to wipe off the face of the earth, and, and now he's using the Israelites to ex- execute his judgment against these people. That's tough. And then you get to the New Testament. I mean, the God of the New Testament is supposed to be the guy. I mean, that's like the happy God, right? Old, God, Old Testament is God of wrath. New Testament, happy God, right? That's something else. That's a little myth you'll discover along the way, that the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, spoiler alert, same God. Same voice, same voice. When you hear the voice of Jesus, when you read his words, it's the same voice as the Old Testament God. It's the same God. So you get to John, book of John in the New Testament, words of Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 18. This is Jesus speaking about himself. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Finally, some good news. Whoever believes in him, speaking about himself, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but... Can we just leave it at that? Why do we need to have a but there? But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Uh, really? What do you do with that truth? What do you do with that? Do you realize what Jesus is saying here? Okay, yes, there's one, one scenario for the people who do believe in him, and there's a different scenario for the people who do not believe, who reject. In fact, Jesus says it's not like they're going to be condemned in the future. He says they're condemned already. What do you do with that? How do you take this reality, if this is truth, how do you take this truth and live it out? I mean, think about the people. What do you, I mean, let's make this about me. What do I do with this? I think about the people in my life that I love, and some of those loved ones, some of the people that I care about, they do know Jesus as Savior. They do believe in the Son of God. They do. And I think about other people that I love and care about, and I wonder, well, do they know? Have they believed? Because if they haven't believed, then they're, is this, does this mean they're condemned? These are tough truths. And there's two ways to respond to that. You know, even Christians who, well, I know the Bible really well, and I'm, you know, I've got my theology straight. Even Christians who, who have that attitude and have that perspective, we come to, to face-to-face with truths like this, and we think, well, you know what? I've got that brother or that sister or that parent or that son or that daughter or that grandchild, and they don't know Jesus as their Savior, but they live a really good life. They're a good person. I know them. They're a good person, and I'm just sure God will work it all out in the end because God is fair and God is just. And, you know, like, is, that, is that the, we take that attitude as Christians. Because this is a tough truth. The other way we could respond is we could allow this truth to inform how we behave and say, my goodness gracious, if what Jesus is saying is true, if people who don't believe in him and haven't received him are condemned, then I better get active. I better share the gospel. I better tell other people about Jesus. As tough as that might be, as uncomfortable as that make me, it makes me, as awkward as those conversations might be, I mean, if this is true, i got to do something about it. And i got to do the very thing that Christ has commanded me to do, which is share His truth with others. Matthew 16, 24, 25, Then Jesus said to His disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Why does it have to be like that, Jesus? Why does it have to be so extreme? Can't you just say, whoever wants to be my follower can go to church on Sunday and kind of say a little prayer and accept me as Savior and then go about their business? Can't it be like that? I mean, that's what I thought it was, Jesus. Why does it have to be so extreme? Self-denial? To give up your life and your plans and everything you had figured out about who you were going to be when you grew up and give all that up and sacrifice that? For the sake of following Jesus, really? Jesus, are you saying that you're worth all that sacrifice? And he is saying just that. John chapter 16. You know what Jesus promises his disciples in John chapter 16 in verse 33? He says this, In this world you will have trouble. Oh, good. Thanks, Jesus. Thanks. Thanks for the heads up on that one. Great. These are tough truths. And it just gets tougher. John chapter 19. I mean, what did I tell you about Jesus? Did nothing wrong. Lives his whole life. Obeying God. Everything God says to do, Jesus is like, I want it. Everything. Everything. And what happens to him? He's put on a cross. Well, first he's beaten. Then he's put on a cross. John 19, 28 through 30. Later. This is on the cross. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. The jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant, lifted it to Jesus' lips, and when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And there we are, after three or three and a half years of engaging in ministry and serving other people and telling people the truth and loving people and healing people and repairing broken things and fixing broken people and repairing broken hearts. This is where Jesus is left. All of his disciples, except for one, all of them, gone. There's only John there, just one of them. Only one of the 12 was left at the foot of the cross to watch Jesus die. These are difficult truths that we might not want to believe, that we we might want to push back against. This feels like a really terrible place to close in prayer. So let's not. Let's not close in prayer. But that's, that's the kind of stuff that you're going to experience when reading the Bible, things that might put your faith to the test. But on the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, you come to face to face with other truths that will encourage you and inspire you and lift you up and give you purpose and change your perspective and change the way that you relate to other people in the most wonderful, beautiful way. Passages and truths that will give you confidence in who God is and in His loving nature and in His justice. And you can read all that tough stuff, but you're going to read the wonderful stuff too. Genesis 6, 18 through 19, and yes, the flood, terrible, but this is what God does. God says, but I will establish my covenant with you, speaking to Noah. You will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wives, and your wife and your sons' wives with you, to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. And you will see God find the one person and his family on the planet, because there was only one family He could have just wiped them all out, but he saved the one righteous family. There is hope. Even if there's only one, he will save the righteous 
and you'll read the book of Jonah. And that's another one you probably heard about when you were a kid, right? And I don't want to spoil anything for you. It's a pretty dramatic story. You'll read the book of Jonah, and there's a group of people. It's the Ninevites. They aren't Israelites. They're a foreign nation. And you know what? They're awful to each other. They're terrible. They're sinners. And what does God do? He talks to an Israelite man and says, Jonah, you've got to go warn them, tell them that what they're doing is wrong, and if you don't tell them, if you don't intervene, I'm going to wipe them all off the face of the earth. And Jonah says, well, I'm fine if you wipe them off the face of the earth. I'm not going. God says, guess again, you're going. Again, I don't want to spoil the story for you, but it's pretty dramatic. And so we get to Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, and how they repent after receiving Jonah's message, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Because God is fair. And he saved the people that were so far from him because they repented. And God honored their repentance. Praise God. And you'll read John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, this is Jesus speaking about himself, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever, regardless of what their past is about, regardless of, of you know, their faith system or lack of faith system, regardless of who they were before that point, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For this, oh, this is great, verse 17. So we, often, we often just stop at 16. We've got to read 17 too. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And we learn this about God, and we learn this about Jesus, that Jesus' whole purpose, it was a salvation mission. He wasn't here to condemn, but to save. And everyone has a chance. It says whoever, right? Everyone has a chance to receive Jesus. You can't get more inclusive than that. How wonderful are these truths? And you'll read all of John. 1633, not just a little snippet I gave you earlier, when Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. How does he finish that statement? But take heart, exclamation point. I have overcome the world. Jesus says that before the cross, before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, he speaks it as if it's already happened. I have overcome this world. And you'll read, <laughs> you'll read about the resurrection. The story of Jesus doesn't stop at the cross and you'll read John chapter 20, verses 19 through, 19 through 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, this is after the crucifixion, when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed him his hands, the scars from the nails, and his side, the scar from the spear. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And when it gets to about this time next year, you'll be reading in the scripture, and maybe you'll be going through a time where you're just facing so much, so much difficulty. Listen, life is tough, all right? Again, for those of you who are young, spoiler alert, this world is a broken place, and life is tough, and you've got to work jobs, and people will be on your case. And you'll, Maybe you'll be at a point where you're feeling overwhelmed, and you'll read Romans chapter 8, oh, and it's going to turn your whole day around, and you'll get to verse 18 of chapter 8, and you read what Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings, whatever they may be, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And Paul's big and bold claim that we, when we get to be with Jesus, when we get to heaven, when we get to the new earth and the new heaven, when we get there, we, it's like a distant memory. Whatever kind of nonsense is going on in this present world, whatever kind of suffering, whatever it is, will be, it's not even worth comparing to the future glory. And then, 
just around Christmas time, you'll be in the book of Revelation. Won't that be fun? <laughs> It'll be great. We're going to love every minute of it. We're going to love it. And you'll get to the end of that book. And it's a tough book, and there's a lot. There's judgment, there's wrath, but there's also love and redemption and redemption and opportunities to be saved all the way through that thing. And you'll get to the end of that book, Revelation 21, and you'll read verse 4. Jesus is speaking about Jesus. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Listen to this. If this doesn't give you joy, if this doesn't give you hope, if this doesn't give you purpose, I don't know what will. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And any kind of nonsense or brokenness or heartache that's experienced in this life, it'll all be over. No more. And listen, you'll read the book of Revelation, and you'll read about how wonderful, and even throughout the New Testament, you'll read about how wonderful heaven is and this whole thing where Jesus comes back and creates a new heaven and a new earth, and everything is perfect like the way it was always supposed to be. It's going to be wonderful. And you'll read about these things, and you'll read about streets filled with gold and the structures and stuff like that, and maybe that appeals to you or maybe not. But I tell you what, when I read the book of Revelation, when I read about the future prophecy of what things will be like, what speaks to me the most I don't really care about the streets of gold. That's fine. I mean, I'll probably be impressed when I get there. But what speaks to me the most is just to know no more death, no more mourning, no more pain, no more crying. And you know what else there's going to be no more of? No more of me, all the junk that I carry around with me as a human being. No more, no more struggling with anger like I do in this side of heaven. No more grief that I carry around with me. That's going to be gone. No more frustration. No more impatience. All that stuff that I can't stand about myself, all gone. And we'll be kind to each other. And we'll be on each other's sides. And we'll be loving each other. And there'll be no more people being defensive. And what do you mean by that? I don't know. It's all gone. That's what waits for us. If I didn't have these truths, I don't know how I would make it in this world. And here's what I'm saying to you. I'm not suggesting, well, we have to have a balance. There's the tough truth, and we've got to keep that on one side. And then there's the, the positive truth, and we've got to keep it. No, no, no. It's not about a balance. It's about a total perspective of who God is and how much he loves us. A total perspective of who God is. These are some, I mean, come on, guys. Look at this. This is, this is, this is one page. This is tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg stuff, guys. Just an idea of what you will encounter when you read the Bible for yourself. And so my questions to you, I've got a couple. My first question is this. Are you brave enough to seek for the truth? And you might have the discipline and you might have the intentionality to sit down and read this book, but are you brave enough to seek for the truth? If you're brave enough to seek for the truth, you will find it. And as I said, you might be put to the test. You're going to read some of those passages that are going to make you make this face. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're going to read some of those passages that are going to be challenging might question some stuff you thought you knew about God. But will you pursue that truth? Here's, my, here's the bigger question, question number two. Will you allow the truth to transform you? That's the bigger question. Will you allow the truth to transform you? Let me show you something else Jesus said. Did you ever hear that expression? It's made it into our culture today. Did you ever hear that expression, the truth will set you free? Did you ever hear that? 
We usually use that when we're talking like, you know, people are telling lies or keeping secrets. Well, the truth will set you free. We usually use it in that context. But actually, it was Jesus who first said that. Did you know that? Jesus said a lot of these things. We don't give him credit for it. Jesus said that. So I want to give you the context for what Jesus was talking about there. So Jesus is speaking to some, some Jewish leaders, and many of them were rejecting him. Many did not believe that he was the Son of God, but some did believe. And so here's what it says. I'm, I'm in John chapter uh, 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed, Jesus said to them, If you hold to my teachings, you really are my disciples. By the way, that's, that's an important thing to know. You can't just call yourself a disciple or a follower of Jesus or whatnot. You have to actually hold to his teachings. So he says, If you hold to my teachings, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. You're no longer hiding in the darkness. You know, the other thing John tells us in chapter 1 about Jesus is that Jesus came into the world as the light of the world, but men, but people, they preferred their evil ways, and so they hid in darkness away from the light. You no longer have to hide when you're living in the truth, not just knowing it, but letting it shape your attitudes and behaviors and actions and the way you relate to other people. That will set you free. It's kind of like those people walking around with those sketchers still, right? Like, I'm going to believe this. They're a slave to the lie. I believe that this is going to work and I'm going to get in shape. No, let the truth set you free. Take those shoes off and get on a treadmill. You know what I mean? Let the truth set you free. It will. Accept the truth. You don't have to be afraid of it anymore. If you allow yourself to be shaped by and transformed by that truth, and it's only after that point, only after we allow ourselves to be transformed by the truth that we really can live into our destiny, that we can become the people Christ always intended us to be, that we can live a life filled with purpose and we can live into this thing that Jesus spoke about, this abundant life. We can only do that after we have not only embraced the truth but allow ourselves to become transformed by it. My prayer for you whether you're reading the Bible in a year or not, whether you're just going to do maybe a verse a day or whatever it is, whether you're participating in this challenge or not, my prayer for you is this, that as you eventually, as you dig into the Word of God, you will allow yourself to be transformed by it. Let me pray for you now. Father God, without, without this book, we wouldn't know you. I mean, maybe there'd be stories passed down, but, but Father God, you've given us the Bible. You've given us the story of you. You've revealed yourself to us in the pages of this book, and we thank you for that, God. And God, there are things about you that are confusing. There are things about you that we wrestle with. There are decisions that you've made in the past that make us uncomfortable. But we know, God, that our understanding as human beings is limited, is finite. You have the big perspective, God. You are just. You are a God of love. And we know, because we've read it in your word, we know that you are a God of compassion. Now, Father God, we know that you desire to mold each one of us, to make each one of us more and more like Jesus. And so, Father God, I say, have at it. Transform us. Mold us. Make us new. Allow us to look more and more like you, Jesus. That's your desire. That's our desire. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.